Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. We're talking today with art collectors Sheldon and Jill Bonovitz. We're sitting in Sheldon's office at Dwayne Morris, which is a blue chip Philadelphia law firm, where Sheldon is chairman and. By the way, I'm chairman emeritus. Chairman emeritus, also art collector in chief. Uh, Jill is a widely respected and collected clay artist whose pots are vulnerable vessels that are whimsical. Their collection is anything but standard, focused on the work of people who didn't go to Western art schools and learn about Michelangelo and Rothko and how to paint with oils. About five years ago, they created a foundation to educate people about these self-taught artists. Um, so we're going to start by asking you to tell us about the first thing you bought by a self-taught artist. I, I think the very first piece of art we bought was a Navajo saddle blanket that we still have. It hung in, it hung over our fireplace, so it was. we thought of it as a work of art. However, we ruined it on one side because we didn't realize how vulnerable it was to the light, and it got very faded. So we have it now. Um, <laughs> When we want to look at it, it's on the good side. When we leave the apartment, we turn it on to the, the bad side. One of the first pieces I remember buying in 1972, we were in a what was then a sort of a folk art craft store uh, in New York, and it was a paint. It was a painting by William Hawkins, and uh, I said to the person at the, the store, "How much is it?" and I think she said $2,300. I said, I'll take it. And I, she almost fell off her stool. I mean, that she, <laughs> she couldn't believe, first of all, that you know, I would just like that take it. And secondly, that, you know, we maybe even bought the piece. And ultimately, that morphed into the, you know, the Rico Maresca Gallery, which specialized in, in selling this material. That, that was pretty early on. So what do you think it was about that piece that you immediately wanted to have it? I think when, at least, I think both of us, um, when we look at art, we have an emotional, you have a reaction to it. You know, I knew what was going on, and I understood what I liked in this this area. Uh, we both very positively reacted to We both jointly make decisions, and either of us has a veto. If I happen to love something that Jill doesn't, which is rare, as it is if Jill loves something and I don't, it'll go to my office where she won't have to see it, <laughs> or it'll go to Jill's. We have a Jill has a sewing. My sewing room, which is the tiniest <laughs> room you ever saw. So it's not exactly. It's not parody, is it? <laughs> well, no. It just goes to show we don't have differ that much. So how did you get from this idea of oh, I like that, let's buy it, to having a substantial collection and thinking about it as a collection? Somebody commented to us or asked us if we were collecting uh, self-taught art. And we had really never thought of the pieces we were buying as any coherent collection. And so that sort of you know, brought to our attention, well, uh, maybe that's a, that is what we're doing, and we didn't even realize it. So then we really started to focus. Uh, for instance, we only buy American self-taught artists, and we try and buy the best examples of each person's work. We don't buy every, every artist that's well-known because there are a few that we just don't gravitate towards. Tell us a little bit about the, um, the embroidered cloth hangings. They were just in the Philly Museum of Art over the summer, yes. I believe. Yeah. 
the cantha cloths? Yeah. Right. Um, we had a friend, we have a friend, who was living in India. And he said, you know, I've discovered something that I think you would really love. And he brought over one of these kantas, embroidered by somebody in a family. And when that person dies, then somebody else in the family continues the embroidery. And the thread is comes from unraveled saris. And they do it on a white cloth that can be like um, a cotton sari material or some other white cloth. So he showed us these, and we really loved them. Sheldon said to him, well, I'd love to have a collection of them. You know, do you think you could get us 40 of them? And his eyes popped open. He said, you know, I don't know about that, because they're very, they were very hard to get. So the way it worked was when he went back to India, he had these people called runners who would bring him kantas, and he would sort of go through and, you know, put aside some that he thought weren't good. And then the good ones he would email us pictures of, and we would buy them that way. Eventually, I think we ended up with, what? 35 or so. Not yeah. quite 40. Not quite 40, quite, and they've, like, disappeared. You can't get them anymore. Well, you can, but it's really hard, really difficult to get them now. What distinguishes them from a lot of other textiles is that uh, most other textiles are made according to a pattern. These are done with no pattern, and they're one of a kind. They're like what's in the person's head. There are certain common characteristics of the of the of the materials. They would start with the tree, uh, a, lotus a lotus flower in the center, and then you'd have the tree of life in four corners. And each one is different, different size. It's it's interesting if you sort of looked at them in a pie and say, "Gee, these are all the same." When you hang them, they're they're clearly uh, different. And it took these women months or years to to do this. Um, I think the best thing that came out of the show was the catalog. Uh, there had been no, virtually no writing on the subject. Is has gotten a lot of awards, and it's up now for what I understand is the most prestigious award for catalogs, called the Bar Award. Bar Award, B A R R. It is a great catalog. And it's, 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 yes, and it's, it's a great, beautiful. And it's a great contribution to the field, and that's really what's important about, um, I think, a show is is uh, what follows from the, you know. Your foundation. Talk to us about your foundation. Tell us its name and what it is. Yeah. Let me just say one other yeah. thing. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have great contemporary art collections, but there are a lot of great contemporary art collections. Because of the material and because of the smallness of the field, there are not a lot of great 20th century American self-taught artist collections. And so that was, to me, an appeal to be able to do something and put something together that would be different. You could make a contribution and ultimately our collection will go to the museum, Philadelphia Museum of Art. We're planning on that. The entire collection? The entire the collection. Yeah. And how big is your collection? Um, we have probably, well, five or six hundred pieces, but I, the good, great, interesting thing about a collection is, it should be, it's not a survey. It's the artists that you like. So we have some artists that we really like that other collectors don't like or the greater public doesn't necessarily like, and there's some other artists that would be in every survey that we just don't relate to. So we didn't do this with an idea. Let's just put together a survey of great, great work. It's, we're a little different. And, and what I liked, another thing with the, the contas, you know, we managed to put together, we love it. The, the, what starts with the aesthetics, we love it. But we also have probably one of the most important collections, not that anybody was really focusing on this. And as Jill said, now we could never put it together, and now the museum has it. 
So the museum has a really wonderful collection of, the, of this, uh, you know, this material. So if you look back at your collection, what are you most excited about that you have collected? There's certain pieces that I loved when we bought them, and I still love them as much. It's hard to pick out a favorite piece, but we have an, an angel by Ed, William Edmondson in our bedroom, and somehow it's very comforting to go to sleep with an angel. <laughs> Other than my wife, we have two, I, have two, I sleep with two. two I have two angels. Jill can't say that. She has one angel and a husband. Jill is Jill is great. She can see art and doesn't have to own it. I like to see art, but I'm like the super consumer. So, but it's hung. Virtually all of our collection is hung. We hang our own art. I mean, we we make sure that the art is hung the way we want it to be. Including um, in this room, for example, and in your office? No, no, maybe? Jill has sort of let the offices alone. I don't think she's... But are you hands-on with yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> venue is very important for art. And a piece of art can look like crap in one venue and look great in another. And we've had that experience when we've... There was a, in our house, we have a wonderful um, sculpture by an artist named uh, William Edmondson, who was called the Black Brancusi. The, the, the businessman and me, we bought about eight pieces of Edmondson. I was going to sell five, five of them and we'd have three that would be out of the proceeds. Well, we sold one or two and then we decided we really loved him. Except, <laughs> except for this, except, so we didn't, except for this one piece, which was this clunky woman who was about three feet high, very clunky, and we desperately tried to sell it. We couldn't sell it. And so we hung, we put this in our house on a, uh, on a piece of really nice low Chinese bench or table, and it looks spectacular. We'd never get rid of it, never sell it. Um, why don't you tell us just briefly about Foundation Start and where people can find it on the internet? We go to some film festivals, and for a while we were going to Sundance and then just got out of control. So um, now we sort of focused on the Telluride Film Festival. And I all of a sudden realized, like, I love the art that we live with, and I love documentary films, and what about putting my two loves together? Because there are so many people that have never heard of any of these artists, and their stories are incredible, as well as their art. So we decided to, to form a foundation. It's called the Foundation for Self-Taught American Artists. So it took us about four years to make our first film, which was uh, a documentary of James Castle, who was from Boise, Idaho, and was deaf and never learned to speak or to sign, and did incredible artwork. Well, this is something that Jill uh, is a genesis of, and uh, then I had to put the structure together, because I'm a lawyer, I could do this, and, and so I uh, approached the Philadelphia Museum of Art and asked that the museum, if we could be a supporting organization of the museum. What that means is, effectively, that the museum would have absolute control over the over the foundation. I would say could they um, have the right to elect the majority of the directors on the on our on our board. What that did for us is it gives us public charity status. So we could here we were and cachet because we're part of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. What it did for the museum was that they would have a resource, a film about artists, in which the museum does have a very deep interest, 
And, uh, and it was very clear, though, that we had to be self-supporting. We couldn't look to the museum for any funding. And it was very unusual. I think um, Ann Darncourt uh, felt it was so unusual. She, had to get, she got trustee approval to do it. And I think it's been a great, you know, it's been a great relationship. And as Jill said, we've taken, you know, James Castle, who died in 1975, 77 or 75, 77. Um, uh, made amazing constructions out of found materials. And uh, we've taken Astoria Castle to some of the classrooms in the Philadelphia and the kids have made amazing things out of found materials. Mm -hmm. We really want to be the, you know, hopefully to be the repository for, you know, for films about these artists and so we are collecting films themselves that you can get on our website or we have links to <coughs> the website where they can get the films. So are you still collecting art? Yeah, yes, in fact, we, when you have the bug, it doesn't go away. <laughs> we just bought a piece. Um, I, because our collection is going to the museum, I really feel we're buying art for the museum in a way. And we saw this piece in New York, and it's an artist named George Widener. This is, if you looked at this from a distance, you'd see a, a body of water, and you'd see a ship at the very top. You and it's see, very, very large. Yeah, it's about four feet by seven feet. And if you got up close, you see a bunch of dates, like uh, 10, 25, 06. So George happened to be at an opening where, of his work. And I said, well, tell me about the work, George. And he said, well, uh, this starts from when I was born, and it goes till 2053, and it's called Blue Monday. And he wrote 52,000 Mondays, he said. And every 12 months, he would have a, like a nice little circle, almost like a sea bubble, because that meant mark 12 months. And he's a, a calendar savant. He could tell you, he said, when's your date of birth? I gave him my date of birth. I mean, honestly, is this fast? I said, George, was this on a Monday? He said, no, it was a Thursday. And uh, <laughs> the reason he has a ship is because he read a Titanic when it sunk. There were some Wideners on the ship, so he got interested. His name is Widener, unrelated. Um, really an interesting guy and, and uh, interesting story. And there is a movie being made about him. Yeah. We've been talking with Sheldon and Jill Bonovitz. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation and Fleischer Art Memorial. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor and Eric Biondo, who provided the music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.